Welcome back to The Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Scott Meslow, uh, who authored a book on the history of the romantic comedy. It's called From Hollywood with Love, the Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy. Uh, Scott is also the uh, senior editor at The Week magazine, a, a writer and critic for publications that include GQ, uh, New York Magazine, and The Atlantic. Um, thank you for being on the show today, Scott. There's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff going on in the world of rom-coms right now. So we've got we've got a lot to discuss. Yeah, it was the right time for this book to come out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's talk about the book. Let's run through the book. So it's 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 structured uh I think very smartly. Uh you you pair essentially a chapter on a movie with a chapter on a star. Um, uh, and we work all, we start at when Harry met Sally and run kind of all the way up to the, uh, the explosion of romantic comedies on Netflix. And we'll, we'll get to all that. Um, but how, what was it that made you want to write this book in the first place? You know, I, I really wanted to explore genre in general. Um, and when I thought about film genres that were interesting to me, that kind of felt like there was, uh, like unexcavated ground, like like there was there were a lot of unreported stories that I could dig into. Rom coms just felt like the right thing. There were a lot of movies individually that I found really interesting. I found its role in the greater Hollywood landscape over this past thirty years really interesting. And then, and then I felt like the genre itself had a story to tell. Where there was a very clear it was about ten years ago that everyone was publishing their like death of the rom com op eds, and it was just like there's in addition to the movies individually being interesting, there's a larger story that also kind of says a lot about Hollywood and stardom. Like, you know, it's one of those things where the more I thought about it, the more interesting I found the subject. Yeah. Well, let's, all right, let's, so let's start at the beginning, which is with When Harry Met Sally. How did When Harry Met Sally kind of change the landscape? Why And why was this the, the, the moment that you said, okay, this is where the modern rom-com starts? There were a few things that went into that. I mean, some of it is just the Nora Ephron of it all. Like if you're going to pick the godmother of the modern version of the genre, it's Nora Ephron. Um, but I also thought that movie to me was a really interesting kind of turning point where it was, you know, the, the rom-coms that came before it, you look at people who find it, it was like Woody Allen and James L. Brooks and those kinds of directors. And you looked at this, this was a movie that it's essentially an unacknowledged remake of Annie Hall. Um, but at the same time, it adds this big, Hollywood ending, you know, the classic rom-com cliche of the running through the streets and the big speech on New Year's Eve. And to me, it felt like that moment, which was not originally scripted. I mean, that was originally going to have a very melancholy Annie Hollish ending where, you know, Harry and Sally don't end up together and meet on the streets years later with other partners and kind of have this wistful, like, we used to, we, we meant something to each other, but now our lives are something different. Uh, and the decision to change that, I think, really set the tone for where the genre was going. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to to read uh, about each of these movies in your book as as we progress because you you get the kind of establishment of how a rom com works and then a series of movies essentially trying to break that mm -hmm. uh, take that apart and put it back together and do it in a different way. Uh, it's, it, the the ne the next big uh, movie in this in this book is Pretty Woman. Now, how did how did Pretty Woman change that and? Uh, or or kind of set the parameters that would be broken later. Yeah, that, that's another one that I mean, that's that's one of the craziest development stories that I've heard in my entire career. Just it started as this super dark and gritty Sundance script, like, like a like maybe too dark for any mainstream audience type script where it's about this kind of abusive, sadistic billionaire who picks up this sex worker and toys with her before literally dumping her back on the street and throwing money at her. Um, and it's the process by which that got turned into a rom-com was this really 
strange and tortured development process that resulted in this massive, massive hit. Some, so much of that is just kind of the Julia Roberts of it all, which is, you know, the other reason why it had to be the second movie in the book, where it was, if you were going to look at a filmmaker who defined the rom-com in this era, it's Nora Ephron. If you're going to look at an actress who defined the rom-com in this era, it's Julia Roberts. Uh, but it was the same thing where I, I think sort of paradoxically, if you look at that movie, it wouldn't, you couldn't have written it as a straight rom-com and had the same kind of hit. Like you had to, you had to start with this sort of darker beginning to get to this, this middle ground where the stakes feel real, uh, but you can really explicitly lean into the fairy tale that, you know, the movie name checks fairy tales over and over again. And I think, I think if you didn't start with a really dark, realistic situation, the fairy tale part wouldn't work. The movie would be unbalanced. Um, and I, I think that philosophy ended up dictating a lot of the rom-coms that were successful and then overextending that philosophy led to the rom-coms that weren't. Uh, Do you mean in terms of uh, setting a darker stage and then and then kind of pulling it back a little bit? uh, Yeah, establishing some kind of realism, basically, for these characters to live in, because, you know, rom-com is a heightened, elevated genre. Mindy Kaling has a great line about it being essentially a subgenre of science fiction. And audiences are aware of that, but you need some level of connection to human reality or or it completely goes off the rails. And I think situating her in such a dire situation makes the cartoony, you know, the stuff that is so over the top about that romance, you know, the ending where he pulls up in the limo and climbs the fire escape and all that stuff. I think it needed to start in a dark place for that to be earned. Yeah. And there's still some pretty dark stuff in it. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I always I always forget that George from Seinfeld is basically, uh, you know, a not quite a rapist. Yeah, that, no, there's, I, and I asked um, I asked the people involved in making the movie about that. It, it, it was an attempted rape scene. They wanted that to be clear. He if Edward hadn't come in in that moment, it would have been a really dark movie. Yeah. Um, uh, and the the again, the development story here is very interesting because one of the things that you you kind of you, you kind of talk about a lot, but it's it's always hard to nail down is who gets credited for what and what is what what you know finally makes it onto the screen and who gets their name on there and who who gets very importantly the royalties and and all mm-hmm. that stuff but i but this is a kind of classic like there's about 100 different people who took took a crack at it yeah. uh how does that how does that actually work in terms of shaping the film and uh or just shaping the genre in general i mean i i feel like this is a more Maybe not, but it feels like this is a more collaborative genre than some others. Like uh, it's it's a very you know lot lot of lot of cooks with their hands in the pot. Totally. To get... Oh, and I think I, I think that's for the for the two movies we're talking about. That's definitely true. It's when Harry Met Sally is what it is because it started as a bunch of conversations between Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner, and it is equally the you know the side of. Why do women do this and why do men do this? And and those conversations basically led to most of the most memorable beats in that movie. And I think Pretty Woman, without being quite such a rigid, you know, men are like this, women are like this, men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing, had the same sort of development process where in addition to a bunch of unacknowledged screenwriters who added stuff and did away with stuff, they brought in Gary Marshall specifically because they thought he could add a light touch to dark material. He did it with Beaches. And so you look at him and Jason Alexander has a great line about how basically he shot every scene three times. One is if it were a drama, one is if it were a comedy and one where the actors could kind of do whatever they want. And JF Lawton, the original screenwriter on that, who wrote that really dark original draft talked about how that was a movie that was really found in the editing room. Like until they were screening it, even the people who'd made it didn't quite know what the tone was. And it's part of why it was so hard to cast an actor for Edward. You know, Al Pacino was in there for a while and like, maybe Mm -hmm. that would have worked, you know? 
maybe Sean Connery was in contention and it would have been much more explicitly like a Pygmalion story. Like that also could, I don't think it would have been the hit that it was, but like that could have been an interesting movie. That movie could have been a lot of different things. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about the uh, Richard Gere coming to the movie and kind of being like, ah, I guess, I guess I'll do that. But it's hard. It's it's hard to watch that movie now and imagine somebody else in that role. I mean, Julia Roberts obviously is Julia Roberts. This is like it's yeah. impossible to imagine this movie with anybody else in that role. But but also, I mean, Gere himself, too, is is kind of an interesting choice, given his own background. Mm hmm. And he he was pretty reluctant to do it and you know, was very aware that she was the star and he was the other one. And that is what happened. But I clearly, I mean, their chemistry, there's a reason that they did another rom-com. You know, there, there was something about that combo that really worked. I think, I think his sort of stoicism, um, it, it actually really makes me think about say anything. That's another movie mm-hmm. where the fact that the actor didn't totally buy into the movie he was making was actually right for the character. You know, I think that that famous boombox scene, Cameron Crowe has basically talked about how John Cusack not really wanting to shoot that scene, which was the last scene they shot, is why it's good because he's sort of defiant and unhappy in that situation, and that that's what makes it iconic. I think Richard Gere, Rich, Richard Gere is bringing something really similar to Pretty Woman, where it's he's he should be a little callous and jaded and above what he's doing, and and that comes through in the performance that he's if he was playing the swoony romantic guy, it's not the same character and it's not the same movie. Yeah, no, I uh, it's funny reading reading your chapter on John Cusack and uh, hearing that story for the first time about say anything that that Cusack wasn't into it. I was like, oh, that actually that makes a lot of sense. That's why that that image of him, you know, kind of holding the boombox and frowning works perfectly because it 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 feels it feels like he's not totally into it. All right, let's skip ahead uh, a few movies to uh, one of the running themes in your book, which is that. The the rom com as a genre uh, has has been has been I don't know, large let's largely white uh, kind of middle class um, and then and that studios and filmmakers are always surprised when a movie like Waiting to Exhale is a big hit so let's talk a little bit about the development of that film and and what lessons Hollywood did or did not take away from it yeah I mean Waiting to Exhale is just it's one of those where it's so obviously a hit. It's this massive hit book. And then you get, you know, Whitney Houston at the the height of her stardom kind of anchoring this thing. And it's, it's a, it's a super durable format for any kind of plot. You know, you've get sex in the city, totally ripped it off. You know, it's, it's four women kind of navigating love and life and friendship. And it's, it's exactly what happened. It, it was a movie that when you when you just look at the bare parameters, you take a massive hit book and then you make a faithful adaptation with a bunch of stars, it it's going to be a hit, and that's exactly what happened. But it's almost like when you when you look at the way that the studios were certainly were run then, and I don't want to say it's that much better now, but it, I think at least there's an acknowledgement that uh, that some change has been needed, and some people who are advocating higher up uh, for for more movies like this, they always tended to be one offs. These movies that kind of broke out, you know. It even broke out as wrong because, again, I think clearly it was going to be a hit. There's nothing about, unless it was a terrible, terrible execution, there's nothing about Waiting to Exhale that would not have been a box office hit. And it's exactly what happened. And it was and it was a cultural moment. You know, there were all these stories, you know, contemporary stories of the time about, like, women having Waiting to Exhale parties where they'd go with all their friends. And, you know, the theaters were, like, huge, raucous parties. Um and then everyone goes, oh, well, that was nice. And the, you know, the closest they came is they were like, oh, people like Terry McMillan. And they greenlit how Stella got a groove back. Uh, but it wasn't like it sparked this new, oh, there is an underserved audience of black women who would love to go to movies about like what black women are dealing with in the 90s. That 
those movies exist, but they are, it wasn't like the, the way that like Nora Ephron having success sparked a whole run on rom-coms that made a bunch of people make, you know, similar types of rom-coms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get the sense that that has changed in the uh, in 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 the world in which we live now, where you have kind of more niche uh, or more the 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 greater ability to target uh, smaller and smaller niches of audiences? Right. I mean, like, is is this a is this a a uh, a problem that Netflix has solved or that Hulu has solved or or is it still basically the same? I think solved is overstating it. I think it's better because of those things. Uh, it's. I like to think of the Hollywood studios as sort of being like these giant ocean liners that can turn, but like they do it really slowly and only with a lot of effort. And I think streaming is just better equipped to adjust faster, partially because, you know, Netflix with their more data than anyone has ever had at any point in history than what people are watching, they really know how to micro target in a way that just like traditional focus groups and that sort of testing Hollywood studios just can't, they don't have enough information to really know what's real and what's not. Um, or at least they're ignoring the data that might help them make those decisions or mis- misinterpreting it. Uh, but yeah, you, you're a film you know, critic and reporter. You get it. Like working, yeah. <laughs> dealing with Netflix is maddening because you never, you just have to judge. And, you know, there are, I've talked to people at Netflix who've had some helpful, candid anecdotes for me, but mostly you have to judge based on what they're doing. And if you look at their slate, it really like, exposes the lie about how people don't want diversity in rom-coms or or in their films in general uh, because they wouldn't keep making the types of movies they're making if they weren't connecting with audiences on streaming so i think the hollywood studios the more traditional studios can't help but adjust to that because the, the data is there at this point yeah yeah uh, all right let's let's shift gears again slightly uh, and go to the to the britcoms the british romantic mm. comedies and specifically one uh, writer director in particular who 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 is it from uh, the, the across the pond that has really kind of changed how uh, you know uh, or at least has has changed somewhat how we see and uh, react to and respond to romantic comedies ah yes Richard Curtis the <laughs> the great question mark sometimes great Richard Curtis uh, who I mean he's he's all over the book because he has to be if you know, for mm-hmm. there are three chapters on his films you know we've got four weddings and a funeral in there and and there's Bridget Jones's Diary, which he was a writer on. And um, why am I forgetting the third? Oh, Love, Love Actually. Actually, of course. Yeah. The, the best. The, the best movie with them. all of the love <laughs> stories in it. As, as many forms of love as he could possibly find. And that's as, as much as, you know, the book is called From Hollywood with Love, so I'm cheating a little. But you can't really you can't really look at what was happening with the rom-coms without also looking at what in particular Richard Curtis was doing with the genre at the same time. So how how what what did he introduce uh, to the genre? Do you think from your from your perspective as the rom com uh, expert, uh, what was it that he injected into it that that kind of uh, helped liven it up, freshen it up, or uh, set into stone some of the things that we see all the time now? Well, the simplest and most accurate answer is Hugh Grant. Which you know, if we're gonna if we're going to have a defining rom com leading man of the era, the same way that Julia Roberts was the defining leading rom com woman. It's Hugh Grant. And and but not even just I mean, that launched him to super, super stardom after four weddings and a funeral. But but it's also what he represented. Uh, he is very much a Richard Curtis surrogate archetype. Um, he, Hugh Grant has talked many times about how he's basically just playing Richard Curtis. Um, and <laughs> Richard Curtis was really reluctant to have Hugh Grant star in those movies because he thought Hugh Grant was too handsome. And he wanted four weddings was supposed to be written about kind of the guy who doesn't normally get the girl. 
uh, a guy who Richard Curtis very much thought of as himself. He he said this. I'm not insulting him, <laughs> but but that was that was what that movie was built around. And Hugh Grant was basically able to be that self-effacing, self-deprecating, kind of insecure, stammering Englishman that became this real romantic archetype, while also having the floppy hair and the you know the perfect eyes and all the all the things that people loved about him so much. And I think that that really set a romantic ideal that that again it defined a lot of the rom-coms that came after and this it, this happens despite uh hugh grant almost sabotaging himself as like desperately as po- i like I'm, I'm trying to imagine a worse possible way for a uh a you know kind of uh romantic lead to sabotage themselves than by getting arrested for being in a car with a prostitute on the you know on the streets of hollywood uh, and then having to pitch your movies at the same time, um, you you have it. You have an interesting little riff in your in your book where you 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 just write the you write the transcript with ums and ahs and everything uh, from his uh, from his appearance on Jay Leno, his famous appearance on Jay Leno, in which he apologized. I I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I get the sense that you did not uh, find that to be a wholly. Um, contrite or personal apology i think that's safe to say and and you want to talk about how dire the situation could have been for him you know the part that you left out in your summary is he was cheating on his extremely famous girlfriend elizabeth hurley who had had a similar breakup just by wearing a dress to a premiere and so they were sort of a golden tabloid couple in general uh she she was getting as much attention as he was at that point and so then she was also put in the public eye in this horrifying way like it really is like the nightmare pr situation to end all nightmare pr situations and he as you say, gave this very famous apology on that is taught. You know, literally, they, they teach this in PR firms how to handle this kind of crisis. That he he came up and you know acknowledged fully that he did was wrong, but he was doing it very much in what you think of as that Hugh Grant persona, where he, he you know he fully fully acknowledged the wrongness, but did it in sort of this charming, dry British, but you know self deprecating way. And uh, my. My extrapolation and take it or leave it from, you know, from what I what I experienced, what I found from interviewing, you know, all the, all the stuff is that I I think every bit of that speech was calculated. That was mm-hmm. especially going back and watching it now and especially knowing that Hugh Grant is so not that type that he is so closely associated with that he he was so thrilled to be done with rom-coms. He's so thrilled at this phase in his career to be playing types that are closer to himself. If you want to see much closer to the Hugh Grant and it's watch Bridget Jones that mm-hmm. his real persona is much more of kind of a savvy roguish, you know, very self-assured uh, performance of a lifetime. Why wouldn't you go on Jay Leno and play up the parts of yourself that made audiences fall in love with you in the first place? And uh, you cannot argue with the results. It was a, when if people remember it now blip in the radar, you know, and his career continued to pace. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, it's, it's, again, it's really interesting to, to look back and, and think on that. And, and also, a, you know, a, a thing that's kind of hovering around the edges in some of these essays that, um, that I, you don't, you don't dive into a ton, but is, is always there is the, the kind of interaction, the interplay between the tabloids and the stars and how people see them and how audiences react to their personas, you know, in real life versus, on the screen, what what do you think of that relationship and uh, either the healthiness or the toxicity of it, or, or like can 
I guess secondary question here is can can you even really separate them? Because I do I do think there is an um, there is a certain amount of people want to see on screen the people that they read about or at least see the pictures of on the supermarket checkout stand, right? Mm-hmm. Like how much of that relationship uh, is uh, commercially positive and socially negative? <laughs> I think that's a really good and complicated question. And it's something I think about a lot and don't have a quick answer to other than there are examples of it that are super interesting. I do think, I mean, God, you want to talk about like parasocial relationships that people have with celebrities. It was, if it was true then, it's very true now. People are so, you know, tabloid culture, at least, you know, as much as it was the supermarket aisle, there is a distance from someone, you know, posting on Instagram five times a day, uh, and which is clearly a major part of modern stardom uh, in a way that like, you know, Julie Roberts didn't have to be on social media. It was tabloid reporters covering, you know, when she was going out dancing and drinking and, you know, Chelsea when she was visiting New York for a shoot or whatever. Um, but I think you can look at dramatic examples of where this really did hurt people. Uh, Meg Ryan, certainly the her her love life not matching up with the America Sweetheart image was disastrous for her career. Uh, you can you can track that and and certainly when when she tried to take roles that were outside of the America Sweetheart thing that really hurt her. But on the other hand, I think there are ways to be savvy about it. I Runaway Bride was so winky winky in its promotional stuff about Julie Roberts's actual love life. You know the you know, famously kind of jilting Kiefer Sutherland um, that there that is a movie that is so predicated on her star persona, which was so enmeshed with her tabloid persona at that point that you can't. You can't possibly separate the promotion of the movie and the stuff about Pretty Woman and being reunion there. Like there are so many things that were going on that made that movie a hit. And if it's not Julia Roberts, none of that stuff factors into the way that movie is promoted or sold. It's mm-hmm. and so she how much of that was kind of happy accident and how much of that was calculated, that that is people who were having private meetings that I don't you know, I was not able to get clear information on. But I, I there's no way the conversations weren't happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it it is fascinating just to just to kind of sit there and think about, especially with now that we're in an almost post tabloid society and into, as you say, kind of the more parasocial like I'm talking to all my friends on Instagram. You know, this is this is how I want people to see me. It's it's it really is uh, something else. Uh, One person who was definitely, I think, hurt by this, though, not not really a tabloid. This is a more straightforward interview that just featured one line that has been taken out of context forever and ever is Catherine Heigl, mm-hmm. um, who went from being like Julia Roberts 2.0 to almost out of the conversation in terms of big movie stars uh, almost overnight. Yeah. Um, what what happened there? And uh, I, 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 from your perspective, uh, again, as the as the rom-com guy, how has she managed to recover? Yeah, I think I feel and I've always felt that she really got a raw deal. You know, it was it was one line in a Vanity Fair interview, as you say, taken very out of context. And, you know, in, in what was really a pretty glowing appraisal of, you know, the, the writer's very positive on her, but she's also pretty positive on Knocked Up, if you read between the lines. Mm-hmm. What she basically says is, you know, she had a great time making the movie and there are parts of it that are a little sexist. And, like, I don't think that's even arguable. Like, that is, for better or worse, that's that's Judd Apatow's thing. He... He takes the rom-com and he recenters it to be around a male main character and his friends like that, especially if you look at kind of the one two punch of 40 year old virgin and knocked up. What she's saying is that, you know, this is a movie that where the men are the ones making all the jokes and the women are sort of her character is basically there to be 
the obstacle and then the solution in Seth Rogen's journey. And I think if anything, she's underselling her own work a little bit. Like there's a really, it's kind of a funny runner about her trying to cover up her pregnancy at work. And then they eventually realize it's going to, they can exploit it. And like, he's not involved in that at all. And that's a really funny arc. And her, her comic style is not the same as his, you know, everyone knows kind of the classic Judd Apatow riffing thing, but she's, she's a little more controlled. She's playing this very type A character. I still think she's really funny in the movie. Uh, And I think she gets good moments, but, but the movie is heavily tilted towards its male characters. And I, I don't think her pointing that out was now this movie is terrible. I mean, she, she herself said this many, many times because the other thing is, let's say you disagree with me and you think that comment was out of bounds. And it was probably not a smart thing to say to Vanity Fair when you're promoting a movie. Uh, people, people tend to be a little more controlled, although she's never done that. Uh, but she apologized for this over and over again for years. She could not do an interview where this didn't come up at some point. And she always said, love those guys, had the best time. Like, like she... There was no way out of this, you know, the it was this. And then, to be fair, the Grey's Anatomy stuff, which was another ill-advised mm-hmm. comment where she she basically said she didn't deserve an Emmy nomination because the material hadn't been. Good. That was not a smart thing to say from a PR <laughs> perspective. Obviously, that's that's a quick way to, to make sure yeah. you never get a good plot line on a TV show again. But we're talking about two lines in two interviews over many, many years, and she still gets punished for it. Um, and I think she's actually rebounded quite nicely in terms of, you know, she's doing she's doing Firefly Lane on Netflix, which was a hit for them. Um, she's done some smaller under-the-radar indie-type stuff that I think she's pretty good in. Um, I, I would like to see her have a real comeback role in a serious way. I'm not sure she's ever going to be afforded that opportunity. Uh, but to me, like or dislike the comments, think they're smart or not, it, it is the out-of-proportion reaction to them that is so insane. Um, yeah. And, I think that remains unresolved as far as I can tell. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's switch. Let's let's shift gears again uh, and talk about the raunch comms a little bit. Uh, Judd mm-hmm. Apatow. I mean, I like it's very interesting uh, to to think about how rom-coms work because you do have you have your kind of standard uh, pretty woman. Uh, uh, I I don't think this is being sexist to say female uh, oriented and and. Um, targeted uh, movies of that nature. I think at one point, we'll, again, we'll get a little, we'll talk a little bit more about Netflix, but you describe the modern Netflix movies that people watch over and over again as the old, you know, Julia Roberts movies that they wore out VHS tapes on, right? Yep. Like you get, you get that sort of movie. And then, then you have the, the, the Judd Apatow movies, which are, I think, again, not being super sexist here to say more oriented towards men and trying to attract men to the, to the movie theater and, and get them there. How does, uh, how does that shift in perspective change the overall arc of the rom-com? Because I do feel like it's it's a it's a fairly enormous business shift, if nothing else, trying mm-hmm. to say like we're gonna we're gonna go after this half of the market that has essentially written off this genre forever. Um, how does that change things in Hollywood? Well, I think there's a reason too that you know one of the one of the movies that I've been challenged on occasionally and including that I felt really strongly about including was there's something about Mary, um, partially because you know that movie coming out when it did, kind of established a new genre, a new tone for for rom coms, a new audience for it. Um, that while being a rom com showed that it you know there was there was a way forward that wasn't so heavily skewed towards what they thought female audiences wanted. Uh, and Judd Apatow kind of took that and run, ran with it. Um, I find I find what he did really interesting, uh, in part because it seems like a lot of the so much of what a rom, you know what constitutes a rom com is marketing. Uh, in, in in some ways, like 
the nineties stuff that we're talking about was an aberration. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like you go back to stuff like his girl Friday or, you know, bringing up baby or whatever. Those were movies for everyone. Uh, we, Mm -hmm. we would now acknowledge them as romantic comedies, but it wasn't like, here's the movie that women go see. Like that was almost more of a marketing decision than it was the movies themselves. Uh, and I think what the Judd Apatow thing was doing was they basically just didn't say they were making a rom-com. Um, if you asked him, he would tell you, told me, uh, but those movies were not sold as rom-coms. They were, they were sold as, you know, big wacky summer comedies. And, and so was mm-hmm. Wedding Crashers, same idea. You know, there was, there was, this was kind of an era where there was basically a recognition that like you could, for an audience that might traditionally be resistant to romantic comedies, you could kind of like, it's like a sugar with the medicine type situation where, you know, it's, which is very unfair to rom-coms as a genre, which obviously I love. But like the idea was a certain segment of the audience would self-select out they, they would just instantly opt out if something was too rom-com. But if you marketed it as something else and that it was also a rom-com, they were already in the theater. Uh, and I think that from a business perspective, more than anything, I mean, look at the results spoke for themselves. They were rom-coms always, and this was true even in the death of the rom-com era, but they profitable more often than not, because they're not that expensive to make. And, you know, mm-hmm. there, there was a, an audience, but there was, it turned out there was a blockbuster level audience, kind of a sleeping giant. Uh, and that was, that was what stuff like Wedding Crashers and 40-Year-Old Virgin proved. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear it put this way because I, you know, I, uh, those movies came out. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember exactly the timeline here. So I remember th- thinking of the 40-Year-Old Virgin. Oh, this is a movie like Old School mm-hmm. when I was going to go see it in theaters. Not oh. like, oh, this is a movie like Pretty Woman. Because, I mean, they're I, like, I think it is much closer to a movie like Old School than a movie like Pretty Woman. But I remember also being surprised, like, oh, this is actually a nice, there's a nice relationship mm-hmm. in this movie with the delightful Catherine Keener. Like, this is all, this is this is very different from what I was uh, expecting, which is, you know, um, smart, Yep, I think. I mean, it, and as you say, the results speak for themselves. Uh, but it it does, it does then kind of lead to an era in which the rom-com is being deconstructed from every angle, both, you know, as a modern phenomenon, which is what you get with the friends with benefits, mm-hmm. uh, no strings attached do duopoly. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and then everything else that has come after that. So what has happened to the rom-com in, in more recent years? I mean, how, how have people tried to, uh, break it down and deconstruct it and say, all right, well, this isn't a standard rom-com. It's a new modern rom-com. Yeah. <laughs> that's clearly that's like, a nut that everyone's been trying to crack for a long time. Um, I think often with not particularly successful results. Um, it's you, you mentioned stuff like friends with benefits and no strings attached. I, I really love those movies conceptually. I, I don't think, I, I think they both have, they're both successful enough, but by no means like I wouldn't have included them in, in the list of the great rom-coms of all time, but I love them as like a representation of Hollywood, just like rolling up its sleeves and being like, what are the kids doing these days? Oh, it's like casual <laughs> hookups. Let's make the casual hookup rom-coms. But then they're like, super traditional romantic comedies and structure that like end with the couples and big gestures. Like it's, it's so funny that they were like trying to crack something and then ended up doing the exact same thing. Uh, I think there are more, they're more complicated and interesting examples of that, but you have to, you have to kind of look at what was happening in indie film. Um, and then at the same time, you had movies that really took it the other way. If you look at, they came together, which, you know, by no means w- was a huge hit, but I think a, that is just, so thoroughly savaging rom-com tropes uh you know it's where it's a 
it is such a withering look at it, where it just cranks everything up to 11 and just lets that play out. Um, or, or the more conventional Hollywood version of that was, isn't it romantic? You know, which is very, very explicitly as rebel Wilson gets stuck in a rom-com universe. Uh, I think that those to me were, if anything, a, that's kind of a canary in the coal mine for like, we've taken this as far as it can go. And now filmmakers feel like they need to deconstruct it on that level because mm-hmm. audiences are so familiar with these tropes. Uh, so that it's a very scream like moment. Yes, exactly. Where that's the perfect point of comparison yeah. where, where we need to, <laughs> the audiences are too savvy at this point. They know how this works. And there were, there were rom-coms, even more traditional rom-coms that were still trying to deconstruct, you know, while they were doing, while they were doing rom-com stuff. Um, it was just, it just came off as a little desperate often. Um, and, Cause yeah. I think it kind of was, I, I think they didn't quite know how to capture both, a genre that people were increasingly familiar with the tropes of and a style of kind of dating and modern love that was increasingly divorced from what had existed in those earlier rom-coms. Yeah. I, what do you, what do you think audiences want from this? Because I, I, this is, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this now myself uh, after having watched uh, bros and ticket to paradise kind mm-hmm. of in, in close proximity to each other. And we can talk about, we can talk about the success and, and failure of those movies in a second here. But like, I, I, I am I get the sense just from looking at what works on Netflix and what works in theaters that audiences still are kind of into that like eh, you know what we have a formula we like it. Yep. This is this is what we're here to watch. So there's you really I understand that it's kind of embarrassing to write this sort of thing over and over again Hollywood uh screenwriters but like that's kind of what we want as viewers. Mm-hmm. So why not just give it to us? Yeah. No, I I think that's exactly right. I think that's what's kind of like what's funny about what Hollywood was sort of flailing at is if anything, it, this might not even have been true to be fair in this kind of death of the rom-com era that I cover. But I think now we have nothing but evidence that people want to see traditional rom-com tropes. It's the, the rise of the Hallmark channel alone, which to be fair is a slightly different kind of comfort food than like what you would go to a movie theater for. But, mm-hmm. but if you need proof that this stuff is durable, the fact that they added a second Christmas in July <laughs> because because there was such a hunger to watch these movies on a 24-hour loop. Like, audiences, and I don't think it means the audiences are unsophisticated. I think it means they're very sophisticated because I think it means they know what they want. And right. they, are not, they are not apologetic about leaning into the tropes. I, I think if you're going to subvert them, you better know what you're doing. If anything, you're, it's a safer bet to steer in um, because... Because if you do something subversive that is not interesting or entertaining to the audience, then they're going to be annoyed. And if you lean into the tropes, there is a solid audience that is always going to be happy with that. It, you know, it goes back to Shakespeare for a reason. It's a pretty durable format for a, for a love story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk. Let's talk bros and tickets. Uh, Ticket to Paradise here, because, again, they're doing very different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ticket to Paradise is kind of a more traditional George Clooney, Julia Roberts. Look, beautiful, rich people hanging out. <laughs> In exotic locales, and they're going to get together, maybe. We'll see. Uh, or uh, And then you have Bros, which is targeted, which uh, is a very interesting movie because it is targeted to a mass audience. Uh, it, is a, it is a, you know, 20 or $30 million budget with probably another 20 or $30 million in advertising behind it. Universal Pictures makes it a key part of their fall slate. Um, but it is about a subculture it's about gay men uh and the the romance there and the the big question was will mainstream audiences show up for it the answer seems to be no 
uh, or at least not in this case. And the question is, why? What happened there? I think it's a good question that everyone is unpacking. Um, I I think it's two things. Um, in, my, in my analysis of what happened, it's first, it's an incredibly mismarketed movie uh, in that it is, you know, it's quite literally out of the Apatow camp. It's a Nick Stoller movie. Um, so, so it is, I don't know why, I don't know why the marketing was, you know, dudes, dudes butts was the posters. It was, it was to do, you know, you didn't know who was in it. You didn't really know the premise. If you were the kind of person who bros could mean anything, um, you had to, the poster was a real thinker. Um, and the, the trailers didn't really give you a plot. It was, it, it looked like a hangout, but not in a way that, you know, for all those Apatow movies, something like 40 year old virgin, pretty clear what's going on there. It's that, that is a movie with a really simple elevator pitch, uh, or knocked up. Same idea. It, you cannot miss what the premise of that movie is. And, and I think if you look at something like bros, I, I'm not sure the marketing ever really sold what it was unless it was a major benchmark in Hollywood, uh, which is more complicated than the marketing would lead you to believe because there, there mm-hmm. are lots of great movie movies with gay representation, including recent ones often on streaming. Uh, sure. but it's not like as much as I, you know, and I don't want to downplay the accomplishment of that movie, which I really like, but but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Basically, telling people this is a benchmark is in itself enough reason to make someone go see any movie. Let alone, you know, we're in an era where, and this this really bums me out, but I've accepted it as reality. Theatrical needs to be sold as an event now, uh, which I think is what they were trying to do by treating it as a historical mm-hmm. benchmark. But to make audiences go see kind of a low key rom com in theaters, uh, I'm not sure it's what people do. You know, we if you look at Ticket to Paradise as a as a contrasting point. That is a movie that's just set in the most beautiful place you've ever seen. And every every trailer makes it look like the kind of thing you'd want to see on a big screen. Uh, it's not a... The Netflix movies, the, the rom-coms that have been so successful for them, tend to look a lot more like bros. They're kind of hangout movies. And it's a lot of people sitting and talking and bantering. I think audiences have gotten used to watching those on screen. Uh, and so if the marketing couldn't sell it as a you-need-to-go-to-a-theater either because this looks so entertaining or because this is so important, I'm not sure the audience was ever going to show up. Um, and then there's more traditional stuff like star power, which, which I think still matters more than, you know, people, people kind of talk every few years about the death of stars in Hollywood. I don't think it's true. And I think no, no knock on Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane, but they're not Julia Roberts and George Clooney. It's right. you put those two on a poster. Audiences have a long and positive relationship with those stars individually and together. And, there is there are a certain amount of people that are going to be pre-sold, and it's the audience that did show up for Ticket to Paradise. It's older people, it's, you know, skewed towards women. It's, if you look at the demographics, it's a pretty clear marketing case why that movie connected with the audience it did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that uh, there again, the 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 question with Bros for me is, you know, look if you if you look at your average rom com, that appeals to women. Audiences tend to be basically two to one women, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, like it's it is a movie about it's a movie without a woman in it more or less. I mean, no, that's not exactly true, but sir, that's kind of what it felt like from the marketing and from you know it just I don't know I I don't even really have a question here. I'm just working it out myself. Yeah, uh, as well. Well, and I think I mean, it's all of the trends we're talking about are more pronounced because it's theatrical and because it was really important mm-hmm. to them to have a wide theatrical release. It's I think Bros is a streaming hit. I think I think that exact same movie gets picked up by Netflix or Hulu or whatever. I think it's a hit. 
Um, and I, I think it, I think the press is better on it. I think the word of mouth is better on it. It will show up on streaming eventually. And I think it'll be a library yeah. hit. Uh, yeah. I don't think it sold itself as a theatrical film. And I, you know, yeah. there are a lot of reasons yeah. for that. Well, that and that brings me to kind of my final point here, which is that the rise of the rise of Netflix, the rise of the Hallmark Channel, you know, the the rom-com for all the talk about the the death of the rom-com in, in circa 2012, 2013, when, uh, as you note in your in your book, a bunch of pieces and sites as varied as Vox and the Atlantic and everywhere else were like, hey, these this genre is dead. We're, we hate it now. Uh, the, these movies actually are still hugely successful and hugely popular on streaming services where people can watch them uh, not only at home in the comfort, you know, on, of their couch, but also over and over and over again. I mean, really, really doing that kind of massive repeat watching uh, that that really pumps up the numbers. Where is the future of the rom-com uh, to be found on streaming? And if it is, does that devalue the genre in your in your eyes because i do feel like a lot of people still think like if it's not on if it's not in theaters it's not a real movie Mm -hmm. and that is you know it's a it's a bias it exists uh i I think i i don't think that's uh an unfair thing to say but it is uh it is definitely not where the the genre seems to be succeeding now yeah no i think that's it's a few separate but interrelated interrelated problems, um, and I I think the the clearest the counter argument I would have is the rom coms that have successfully sold themselves as theatrical experiences. Um, something like uh, Lost City, I think Lost City to me is a very logical example of what a, a future studio rom coms might look like, where it's it, it's a cross genre hybrid. It's romancing the stuff, you know. It's a, it's an action adventure rom com. Uh, with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. And I think that, that to me, Ticket to Paradise is a version of the same thing. It's just selling a different kind of event. Uh, but if you, there are combinations of stars, there are premises, and there are genres you can hybridize with that will make rom-coms work theatrically, is my feeling. Um, and it doesn't even, Ticket to Paradise is a good example of like, you don't need to include like a chase scene where people are shooting guns. <laughs> like you can, you can just put really attractive, beloved people in a beautiful place. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians did that very well. You know, that was that was a movie that sort of, you know, in addition to the marketing, like Bros tried to do, positioning that as a very important movie just for for the sake of representation in Hollywood. It was also just an event movie because it looked amazing. Like it was, every trailer sold, This these are the richest people in the world and they're in these giant mansions and here's a hundred cars and here's the most beautiful dress you've ever seen. And that, that looked like a theatrical experience and it was treated like one. Uh, I don't think it's any knock on the streaming rom-coms to say that they're on streaming. I, I think they count as movies. They're, I think the lesser ones are a little disposable. Um, but it's something like, you know, Hulu had that year where their biggest movie was Palm Springs until it was Happy Season, like which was originally <laughs> going to be a theatrical release. Like, their two biggest yeah. movies were rom-coms. Everybody watched them. They were really smartly positioned, you know, where Palm Springs was sort of their equivalent of, like, a summer release. Like, a, even though it was clearly made on a pretty small budget. Like, it had... It's, you know, it's a big sci-fi rom-com. Uh, yeah. And then Happiest Season, you know, big movie about kind of family tension comes out right at the holidays. You know, it's their big Thanksgiving movie. I think that that to me is not meaningfully different than what a studio should be doing, just just smartly positioning the movies they're making. Um, and to and to close the loop on the other thought you have about basically rewatching these movies, I think that's why Netflix in particular has had some success with its teen romantic comedies. You know, that's if you look at stuff, their big summer of love in 2018, which kind of relaunched the genre for them. 
there are two big things that came out of it were Kissing Booth and To All the Boys I've Loved Before, both of which spawned two sequels. Now To All the Boys is getting like a TV show spinoff. And part of what they found is that those were rewatched instantly. And I think that's that's how you build a library hit, where it's not only did it really connect with that audience, they're going to show their friends, they're going to revisit it because rom-coms are uniquely well-suited to that, I think, because they, they make people, you know, there's a feel-good element just kind of baked into the genre. And then eventually, you know, they watch it for years and then maybe someday they show their kids like people did with Pretty Woman or like they did with the John Hughes movies that really connected with the same kind of audience just 40 years earlier. It's, um, yeah. I think that's, that to me, that, that diversity is a sign of a healthy genre. Um, theatrical remains the biggest kind of question mark in the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, well, that was that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. Like, what do you what do you uh, think of... I mean, is there anything you think folks should know about the rom-com genre, about the state of the romantic comedy uh, that I either forgot or did not know to ask? Uh, what, what do you think folks should be aware of. Yeah, I would say the only other thing that I'm finding really interesting um, is the franchisation of romantic comedies, um, which in theory sounds like the same depressing, like everything that's a hit gets a sequel. Um, But I think in practice, it's led to really interesting romantic comedies. Um, One movie that I, you know, I think didn't really get its due that I think is great is Bridget Jones's Baby, uh, which just by virtue of being the third Bridget Jones movie, because of course, a Bridget Jones movie is going to get a sequel because it's a huge hit. But just kind of because Renee Zellweger was an older woman at that point, it had to be about like, you know, having a falling out from your partner and, you know, not knowing if you're going to get separated, what it would be like to date in your 40s and then like what it would be like to be pregnant. Like it just it took on stuff that if it wasn't a franchise movie, I don't think that movie just in a bubble gets made. You can't just make a movie about Renee Zellweger playing a woman going through all this or at least the Hollywood business case would be harder to make. But because it was a sequel and because other rom-coms are getting sequels, they're kind of having to deal with stuff that the genre sort of glossed over for a long time. And I think that's really interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, Scott, thank you for being on the show. Next time I get you back, I'm going to ask you about the John Wick uh, trunk. A story in itself. That'll be a whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got, we, we'll talk about that. What Scott is uh, just uh, to, so you're not considering they're confused saying John Wick. John Wick is the proud owner, uh, or I'm sorry, Scott is the proud owner of uh, John Wick's original trunk from the the first movie but we'll we'll talk about that on a future date uh thank you for being on the show the, the name of the book again is uh, from hollywood with love the rise and fall and rise again of the romantic comedy uh by scott meslow uh if you if you are a rom-com fanatic you will love this book uh you know i uh it is not my number one genre i but i found myself you know laughing and nodding along with with a lot of it uh so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff in there um uh check it out uh, it's on Amazon, where, wherever wherever books are sold. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back never, uh, next week with a, another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.